Once again, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome. At this time, I would also ask you to join me in welcoming our television and webcast viewers to today's program. This is where I have to be on my best behavior because the cameras are running. Again, my name is Danny Asaf, and I am uh, the president-elect of the Canadian Club of Toronto, and we now thank our viewing audience for being with us. The Canadian Club has a long history as the leading current affairs podium in Canada, led by a volunteer board of directors who are dedicated to encouraging open and accessible debate on issues that matter to Toronto, our city, our province of Ontario, and, of course, our country. Through our youth and young leaders programs, civic action, diversity partnerships, accessibility commitments, as well as through our media partners and social media properties, we provide opportunities for Canadians around the world to engage with leading political, business, and public figures. And we thank you, everyone, for joining our conversation today. And before formally introducing it to our speaker, I would like to take this opportunity, if you'll allow me, to tell you about some current upcoming events at our club. On April 27th, we're proud to host Christine Elliott, candidate for the leader of the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario, and she will be joining us to outline her bold vision for the future of Ontario and offer her solutions to restore Ontario's position as a leader in Canada. And on April 28th, we are equally proud to recognize one of the country's most distinguished Canadians, the Right Honourable Paul Martin, with our, we're proud to say, 2014 Lifetime Achievement Award. An award that celebrates the lifelong efforts and leadership of extraordinary Canadians, such as Mr. Paul Martin. And you can see a full listing of our current events and order tickets at our website at canadianclub.org. And you can also join the conversation via Twitter and Instagram by following us at CDNCLUBTO or by using that hashtag. Now, to the event that we've been waiting for and the moment we've been waiting for, ladies and gentlemen, on your behalf, I am pleased to introduce this afternoon's guest speaker. Our guest speaker this afternoon is the Honorable Scott Bryson's second appearance at our podium, and we're happy to have him back. He is a fixture of the Maritimes and was first at our podium in 2004, and at that time he held the role of the Federal Minister Ministry of, he was the Federal Minister of Public Works and Government Services and Receiver General for Canada. Back then, he had the distinction of being the youngest member of Prime Minister Paul Martin's cabinet. A lot has changed in Canada's political landscape since then in these ensuing years. But one thing that hasn't changed, though, is the fact that this Nova Scotia politician continues to be a trusted spokesperson for the party and an influential Canadian. The Member of Parliament for King's Haunts 
was first elected in June 1997. Since then, he's won an extraordinary five elections, truly a feat in modern politics. And today, he serves as the Liberal Finance Critic and Vice Chair of the House of Commons, Commons Finance Committee. In addition to these responsibilities, he's also the co-chair of Justin Trudeau's Economic Council of Advisors and a member of the Trilateral Commission. Graduating with a Bachelor of Commerce in Finance from his home province and university, Dalhousie University, he began a career in the private sector. He worked with business startups and pursued entrepreneurial ventures before serving as vice president of a Canadian investment bank and has brought all of these varied experiences in business to his current role. And these days, in his role as liberal finance critic, it has him continuing to make significant contributions to important public policy matters and discussions. For instance, in January, he wrote an op-ed commentary in the National Post where Mr. Bryson expressed concern about the need to rise to the challenge and revitalize our critical infrastructure. By doing so, he argued, we will all build a stronger, more prosperous Canada with increased opportunities for our middle class, which is the topic we're going to learn more about today and have the pleasure of hearing from our distinguished and honorable guest, Mr. Bryson, the Canadian Club of Toronto Podium, Canada's podium of record is yours. Thank you. Thanks, Danny. I'm delighted to be here with you today. In fact, um, uh, I told somebody, they were asking about the event, and I just said, just Google Scott Bryson, Canadian Club Toronto, and it'll come up. And um, in my office, I said to send the information to the event. They did that, and what came up first was uh, Scott Bryson, 2005, the event. And so my office was sending out to people information on a speech that I'd given here around uh, 10 years ago. Um, the uh, interesting, you say, you know, remember Paul Martin's cabinet at that time. I was at a an event in London, Ontario, a partisan event a few months ago, and this elderly guy came up to me and he said, Mr. Bryson, I really want you to meet my wife. And he took me over and introduced me to her and he said, this is Scott Bryson. He was a member of cabinet. He served in John Turner's government. <laughs> the funny things happen to you in politics. Uh, I want to say hello. It's great to see my former colleagues, Rob Oliphant and Paul Zed. Uh, I'm a partisan, so you'll, you'll forgive me if I say I'm... Uh, Paul's not running this time. Rob is, and as such, I'm looking forward to seeing Rob in the House of Commons in the future. Both of them served very effectively as members of Parliament and made a real difference on behalf of their constituents. Also, I want to recognize Libby, Libby Burnham, uh, Chancellor of Canada's finest undergraduate university, Acadia University, who sent to my daughters Rose and Claire Acadia University sweat tops uh, the week they were born, 
and uh, they were blue though, Libby. Do you have any red sweat tops at Acadia anymore? I got it one little Rose and Claire story because some of you were asking me about Rose and Claire. They uh, are sleeping, they're in their cribs 12 hours a night. We put them down at, uh, in the nursery at 7 p.m. We don't get them up until 7 a.m. Uh, we, we can hear them, though. We have a monitor. You can take the batteries out of those, by the way. <laughs> but at 6 a.m., Rose starts talking, and she talks for an hour. And when we go in at 7, Rose is standing in her crib talking, and Claire is lying in her crib like this, so I figure if Rose can talk for an hour without saying very much, she could do very well in my line of work. Um, look, i got to tell you, funny things do happen to you in politics. And just last week, a very funny thing happened to me right here in Toronto. In fact, it was just down the street at the Intercontinental Hotel. And that's where I witnessed one of the best comedy performances I've seen in years. I, seriously, folks. Nobody at Yuck Yucks could compare with Stephen Harper's finance minister introducing balanced budget legislation. I mean, honestly, it was hilarious. On the eve of an election, after seven consecutive deficits and adding $160 billion to the national debt, it's really great to see that Stephen Harper's getting tough on deficits. The legislation is so tough, that's where any decent comedy audience would say, how tough is it? But it is so tough that going forward, any government that fails to balance the books outside of a period of a recession, the prime ministers and the cabinet ministers will have their pay cut. My theory is we should amend the legislation and make it retroactive. I mean, if the legislation was applied retroactively, the payroll savings for, you know, as a result of docking the pay of Harper and his ministers would really add up. I mean, we haven't been in a recession for five years. I mean, think of it. We could have more money to spend on government advertising. I mean, we, um, there's, there are funny things that happen to you in politics, but I thought that that one was particularly uh, interesting given the reality of the record of the Harper government when it comes to deficits and fiscal management. I want to talk to you a little bit about something that Mr. Harper is trying to distract us from in recent months, and that is the Canadian economy. Mr. Harper boasts that Canada came through the 2008 global financial crisis better than other countries, and he may be right that Canada performed better, but he's wrong to try to take credit for it. There are three main reasons why Canada came through the global financial crisis in 2008 better than our peer countries. Number one, our banking system. And that is because Paul Martin and Jean Chrétien stood firm against the global trend of deregulation that was the case in Europe and the UK and the US. Number two, our fiscal situation. Mr. Harper inherited the best fiscal situation of any incoming government in the history of Canada a $13 billion surplus, which resulted from a Liberal government that inherited a $43 billion deficit, paid that down, and then proceeded to eliminate $80 billion of national debt prior to Mr. Harper becoming Prime Minister. It's also notable 
that even before the global financial crisis in the fall of 2008, even before the financial crisis, Mr. Harper's fiscal policy had put Canada on the edge of deficit. The third reason is oil and gas. Our natural resources helped pick up the slack when manufacturing faltered. And no politician ought to take credit for putting the oil and the gas under the ground in Alberta and Saskatchewan. And we all know that, you know, it was Danny Williams that put it under the water off Newfoundland. Although I'm told, a good authority, that in fact it was Brian Tobin who put it under the water. It was Danny who helped get oil prices up after. But, uh, I mean, a strong banking system, comparatively strong fiscal situation, and our natural resource wealth did help Canada get through the 2008 global financial crisis. Good government was responsible for Canada's banking system and our fiscal strength. Good luck was responsible for our natural resource wealth. But since the financial crisis, Canada's economic performance has faltered. It faltered even before plummeting oil prices. That's why for over the last two years, Justin Trudeau and his team have focused on the challenges of the middle class in a slow-growth economy. Today I'd like to discuss with you a little bit about the record of the Harper government when it comes to the economy. More importantly, I'd like to discuss the economic challenges facing middle-class families and how a Justin Trudeau government will address them with a plan for jobs and growth. It's really not fair to say that Stephen Harper didn't have an economic plan. In fact, he had a three-prong economic plan, oil, oil, and oil. He put all our eggs in one basket, and of course that basket has crashed. Stephen Harper and his finance minister were caught so flat-footed when oil prices dropped that they actually had to delay the budget. Now, if, that, if they had a real reason with falling oil prices, I don't think Saskatchewan and Alberta, both of whom are more dependent on oil prices for their fiscal framework than Ottawa, could have introduced budgets on time, and they did. But during periods of volatility, governments have a responsibility to provide certainty. Delaying a budget does not instill confidence. And a finance minister who's only participated in five question periods in 2015 indicates a government that does not have a plan, but also one that doesn't have any answers. Let's look at our fundamentals. Again, in 2006, Mr. Harper inherited a 13 billion dollar surplus. And in less than three years, in the fall of 2008, before the financial crisis, we were teetering on the edge of deficit. Since the Harper government came to power, we've had an average annual growth rate of less than 1.8 percent. That's the worst growth rate since of any prime minister since the 1930s. And if things weren't bad enough, just two days ago, the Bank of Canada said that the Canadian economy had zero growth in the first quarter. They've downgraded their projections for this year to an anemic 1.9%. CIBC Economics, I see Benny Tao here today, says that the job quality is at its 25-year low and it's declining. A Stats Canada survey released Friday reported that another 28,000 full-time jobs have disappeared. Growth in middle-class family incomes is flat. Income growth has averaged just less than half a percentage point per year. Household debt is at a record high. 
two-thirds of middle-class parents are worried about whether or not they can afford post-secondary education for their kids. Adult children with good educations are moving back home because they simply can't get a good start on the pay that they're earning, often with part-time jobs. There's 160,000 fewer jobs for young Canadians today than in 2008. And national surveys show that today's generation of parents are the first generation in Canadian history to believe that their kids will be worse off than they've been. Canadians need a new government with a new plan for jobs and growth and fairness for Canadian middle-class families. Quick one-time asset sales to pad the books, like selling the GM shares right before the budget, that's not a plan. It's an act of fiscal desperation. Showering voters with checks in the weeks before an election is not a plan. It's crass politics trying to buy people with their own money. Back-end loading the funding for the Build Canada Fund is not a plan. It's just irresponsible at a time when we ought to be investing. Cities and provinces urgently need a partner in a federal government that will help fix Canada's crumbling infrastructure. In fact, the Harper government in Budget 2013 actually cut the Build Canada Fund by 90%. At a time when we should be investing, they're cutting to try to achieve an illusory surplus on the eve of an election. Mr. Harper has been focusing on what may be good politics for him, but it's bad for the country to cut these vital investments at this time. In addition to cobbling together a pre-election surplus, the Conservatives need to pay for income splitting and to double the tax-free savings account limit. Neither of these changes will mm -hmm. help the middle class Neither of these changes will do anything for jobs and growth in Canada. In fact, the proposed doubling of the contribution limit of the tax-free savings account, like income splitting, disproportionately benefits the wealthiest Canadians. And those high-income earners, as they retire, this higher limit will cost future governments billions of dollars per year. So keep that in mind, that in some ways these tax cuts today will be paid for by higher taxes in the future. There is an intergenerational equity issue here, as well as a fiscal responsibility issue. It's another example of how this government is, is out of touch with the challenges faced by middle-class families, another example of how they're out of ideas. In addition to being liberal finance critic, I, I am co-chair of Justin Trudeau's Economic Advisory Council with Christia Freeland, uh, Toronto MP. We've engaged some of the best minds in Canada and internationally to work with us to tackle some of Canada's biggest challenges and to see some of Canada's biggest opportunities. I can tell you when we're working with uh, Justin Trudeau in these meetings with these experts from business, from economics, from social policy expertise, when we're talking with Justin Trudeau from time to time members of the council will offer political advice. They'll say something like, what you really should do is this, but the politics may be bad. And Justin uh, very politely um, corrects them and says, I, I don't want your political advice. I want to, your economic advice. I want to know what the right thing to do is. We'll figure out the politics after. I think that says a lot about Justin Trudeau and his team. 
that we will put as a government the right thing for Canadians, the right doing the right things for Canadians ahead of short-term politics. For two years, Justin Trudeau has been listening to and focusing on Canada's struggling middle class. For two years, we've been calling on the Harper government to introduce a plan for jobs and growth. And we've been working with some of the best and brightest to build our plan to help middle class families who are struggling and to help create jobs and growth for young Canadians. <clears throat> Number one, a, a Liberal government will invest in infrastructure. We agree with David Dodge, the IMF, and the Bank of Canada that with historically low bond yields, real interest rates that are actually negative, a flat-lined economy, and a stagnant job market, that this is the best time in our generation to invest in infrastructure and to fix Canada's crumbling infrastructure. Governments in the UK and Australia are leading the way. They're building infrastructure with smart public investment, partnered with global providers of capital. They're working with Canadian pension funds like CPPIB and OMERS and Teachers and AIMCO. And it's a reminder to us, or it ought to be, that Canada has probably the greatest concentration of expertise in the world in the financing of infrastructure. They are building these experts, these groups, this smart money is building infrastructure around the world. Maybe it's time we engage them and work with them, as we are doing as a party, as we will as a government, to build better communities and, and more livable communities here in Canada and create a lot of jobs and growth in the process. Infrastructure investment today will create jobs and growth immediately, but in addition to more livable communities, it builds a more competitive economy in the future and more jobs and growth in the future. It's smart, and it's what a, a Liberal government will do. Manufacturing workers lose wages when their assembly lines shut down because the parts they need are stuck in transit. Commuters are frustrated when they spend hours each day in stop-and-go traffic or congested public transit. The Canadian economy takes a hit when we can't get people and goods to where they're needed in a timely manner. Our public infrastructure is at a breaking point. Half of it is expected to reach the end of its useful life by 2027. Our total infrastructure deficit is estimated to be $570 billion. So fixing our national infrastructure will require a national conversation and true partnerships across all levels of government and business. A national plan to modernize Canada's infrastructure represents a tremendous opportunity for the Canadian economy. And friends, there's a big economic risk in doing nothing and letting the situation deteriorate further. So in addition to investing in infrastructure, we will invest in people and skills. We have a job skills mismatch in Canada, resulting in jobs without people and people without jobs. A Liberal government will work with the provinces. That's right, actually, Prime Minister will actually meet with the Premiers to, to discuss how we can move forward and build a plan to fix this. We need to restore the honour of professional trades in Canada and ensure that young people are exposed to the opportunities at an early age that professional trades and skilled trades represent. 
even today if you're one of the fortunate young Canadians who actually has the skills they need for the jobs of today, in five years or ten years, you may not have the skills required then. The reality of the modern workforce is that it's different from the old days when you graduated from university or college, you'd go to work often for the same company and do roughly the same thing for 30 years, you'd retire with a defined benefit pension and a gold watch. We know that those days are over. And we know that you have to skill and reskill, and you'll have to throughout your, your, your job and life cycle. But we haven't changed vital Canadian programs like the Canada Student Loans Program, as an example, to help people finance the skills they need throughout their career cycle. We need to work closely with the Premiers, and Justin Trudeau will work closely with the provincial governments to ensure that middle-class Canadian families and, 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 and young Canadians will be able to skill and reskill for the jobs of today and the jobs of the future. Just uh, this time of year, there's a lot of young Canadians looking for summer jobs. And I want to mention that it's, it's critically important when you talk to employers that young people have the skills, uh, have work experience when they eventually leave university or college and enter the workforce on a full-time basis for the first time. Today across Canada, young Canadians are struggling to find summer jobs. They face a very tough jobs market. It doesn't help that under the Harper government, the Canada Summer Jobs Program creates exactly half the number of summer jobs it created in 2005. The situation we need to do more now, with the government's actually doing less. And just to put it in perspective, in terms of how you might be able to pay for this, one action, economic action plan ad during the NHL playoffs, a 30-second ad, costs $100,000. $100,000 could help fund and create 32 summer jobs for Canadian students this year. Our priority would be to helping Canadian students find summer jobs, not on self-promotional government advertising. We would invest in infrastructure, we would invest in people and skills, and we would invest in innovation, science, and data. According to the OECD, Canada used to rank in the top 10 countries for total investments in R&D, not anymore. The result, and that results from when you close research facilities and you cut support for science. We need to make critical investments in public science, in innovation, in science, and data to create the jobs of the future. Uh, we will restore the labor-sponsored venture capital tax credit. We will work with innovators in biotech, IT, and clean tech. We will bring the three E's together, energy, the economy, and the environment, to restore Canada's environmental reputation, but also to make Canada a global leader in one of the fastest-growing areas of the 21st century, the green economy. And in terms of data and evidence, it's important many of you represent businesses here today. In the age of metadata, smart government and smart business around the world is investing at an unprecedented level in high-quality research and good information to make the best possible decisions. Think of it. There's only one organization anywhere in the world that over the last 10 years has deliberately chosen to reduce both the quality and quantity of data it collects to make decisions, and that's the Harper government. 
They got rid of the long-form census. They replaced it with a voluntary national household survey that manages to be both more expensive and less reliable. A Justin Trudeau government will bring back evidence-based decision-making to replace Mr. Harper's decision-based evidence-making. We will get back to providing not just the federal government, but provincial governments and businesses, homeowners, investors, with the kind of data they need to make good decisions. A government guided by evidence and science in its decision-making will be good for business, good for middle-class families, and good for the Canadian economy. We also need to invest in relationships. Think of how important relationships are in your businesses, relationships with your customers, your investors, your supply chain, your distribution chain, your banks. The fact is that for a prime minister so focused on oil, it's notable that Mr. Harper has failed to get even one pipeline approved. The reason why is he's failed to build the kinds of relationships we need to have to defend our economic interests. Brian Mulroney is right when he says that the most important foreign policy priority of a Canadian Prime Minister is to have a personal relationship with the President of the United States. Brian Mulroney would have got Keystone XL approved with President Reagan. Jean Chrétien would have got Keystone XL approved with Bill Clinton. Whether it's Keystone XL or by American protectionism or country of origin labeling, Mr. Harper's sulfuric relationship with President Obama renders him incapable of defending Canadian jobs with our biggest trading partner. Harper's relationship with Mexico is not much better. And his abrupt and gratuitous introduction of visa requirements on Mexico made things worse. And for the icing on the cake, he canceled the Three Amigos conference a couple of months ago. Can you imagine with an opportunity for a Canadian Prime Minister to host the presidents of the leaders of our two biggest trading partners, our NAFTA partners here in Canada, in Ottawa? He canceled the meeting. But it's not just that our relationships within NAFTA have suffered. We need to, and Justin Trudeau recognizes, we need to rebuild our relations with China. Those relations have been diminished by Stephen Harper. Foreign investment, including Chinese investment, is critically important to creating jobs and growth in Canada. Mr. Mulroney, Mr. Chrétien, Mr. Martin, they all got it, and so does Justin Trudeau. Mr. Trudeau was the first federal leader to endorse the CNOC-Nexon deal weeks before Mr. Harper announced federal approval. And Mr. Harper, when he announced his federal approval, actually muddied the waters and created uncertainty for future Chinese investment in Canada. Mr. Trudeau, Justin Trudeau, rejects Mr. Harper's position that Chinese investment in Canada carries too big a risk and somehow that we have to uh, put in all kinds of conditions and actually make it more opaque. We need to actually open uh, opportunities to Chinese investors. We need foreign investment to build the jobs and opportunities of the future. Mr. Trudeau also understands that ambiguous rules 
uh, come at a significant cost. The cost is borne by Canadian businesses that need foreign investment to grow and Canadian workers who need jobs. Ambiguous rules post Sinoc Nexon have created a chill on Chinese investment. Chinese investors are as allergic to uncertainty as Canadian investors. And in today's economy, when we need investment, creating uncertainty or putting barriers to investment in Canada is bad for business. Many of you as business people understand how important relationships are to the profitability of your business. If they're important to your business, shouldn't relationships be important to the Prime Minister of Canada in his defense of Canadian economic interests? We will reestablish the relationships that are vitally important to the future of the Canadian economy. We will expand trade with new trade partners and we will deepen our relations with our existing trade partners. Justin Trudeau as Prime Minister will build the relationships we need to defend Canadian economic interests. By investing in infrastructure, people and skills, innovation and science, and relationships, a Trudeau government will be investing in jobs and growth for middle-class families. It's clear that we need a real plan for jobs and growth for the Canadian economy. It's clear that middle-class families need a break. They're tapped out. They need a government that stands with them. It's clear that we need a plan that is fairly built around the middle class and those who are working so hard to get there. You cannot have a sustained economic recovery without a vibrant middle class. Our plan will be focused on growth for today and growth for tomorrow. Our plan will restore confidence among Canadians that their kids will do better than they've done. Canadians are an energetic, ambitious, and open people. They deserve an energetic, ambitious, and open government. With his plan and his team, Justin Trudeau will provide Canadians with renewed hope for hope, for renewed hope for a better future, but most importantly, a plan to help make that dream a reality. Thank you very much. My name is Andrew Graham and I'm on the board of the Canadian Club and it's my pleasure to thank Scott for joining us again um, after 10 years to speak to the club and to share his vision and his party's vision uh, for Canada with us. I think regardless of your partisan views, it's hard not to regard Scott as a passionate uh, believer in, in Canada um, and someone who brings not only thoughtfulness but um, humor and sort of uh, great entertainment value to a conversation like this about serious economic issues. So on behalf of the club and on behalf of the whole audience, Scott, let me say thank you. I hope it's not uh, 10 years until we see you back here again.
I would like to echo uh, Andrew's uh, words of thanks and uh, thank Scott Bryson for taking time out of his busy schedule to be here and for helping us at the Canadian Club to fulfill its mission to have leaders, Canadian leaders, to come and contribute to our mandate and to have this opportunity to talk about the challenges and opportunities that face our country. And we're confident that with your abilities, your insights, and your efforts, the best days are ahead for our great country. Before I adjourn today's meeting, I would like to draw to your, your attention this event survey that we have on our tables. This is it here. And the Canadian Club is always looking for ways to improve its experience. So please take a minute, if you can, to give us your insights and your comments, including whether you like our new shortened luncheon format. We would very much appreciate your feedback. This concludes our program for today, which will be broadcast on Rogers TV in the days to come. We are grateful to Rogers TV and 680 News for their continuing promotion of, the Can of Canadian club events. And again, to learn more about the club, please visit us at www.canadianclub.org. And on that note, I would like to thank you again, our wonderful members and guests, for taking the time to join us this afternoon. And this meeting is now adjourned. Good afternoon.